God, we are reminded of just how awesome and powerful you are as we were led into these moments through singing, through greeting one another. All these elements of our worship, we're so grateful. We're thankful to be able to celebrate uh, some great milestones today, like babies coming to church. We're grateful for the Cunes. We're grateful for all the things you've been doing in and around this community. We know that the foundation of your community, your church, is Jesus Christ. And so as we step into these scriptures together this morning that paint such an incredible picture of that for us, may we hear with our ears, may we receive with our hearts, may we put into action that which you desire, and may all these things be united in the mind of Christ, which we pray comes more deeply into our lives. We ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning again. Thank you all for being here. It's a special day. I want to start off by talking about uh, middle school, a favorite subject of mine. When I was in sixth grade, I had a teacher that I did not like. Shocking. Uh, Also shocking. I was not the most angelic student that ever walked into a middle school. Uh, I had a mouth on me. I did not like listening to what teachers told me to do. Uh, Some of you are nodding like, yes, I get it. Other views are going, that's a terrible thing. One of the things that I did not like about this teacher was that she would remind me of lessons that I wasn't learning. How dare she? I mean, teaching me something. Oh my goodness, like why would you do that? One of the things that she taught me, and I still picture this to this day, it was a simple little phrase that she would write on my papers or that she would say to me over time, and I heard it again and again and again, following directions. Can you say that with me? Following directions. How many of you ever had a teacher write that on your paper? Be honest. It's confession. It's church. Okay, good. I'm not alone. She explained it to me, though, one time, and I kind of remember the conversation going like this in my sort of adult sixth grade brain. She looked at me and she said, look, you're a good student. Like, you can do this, but you have to follow directions. I want you to get started on things actually understanding what I'm asking you to do. You can't go do what I'm asking you to do unless you understand it. That statement, following directions, meant I needed to kind of reframe how I was trying to learn. See, I believed that the best way that I could try to learn was by doing it fast. I was favoring speed, jumping right into a project, getting the reading done, mowing through some kind of test or paper or whatever, rather than really being attentive to what was being asked of me. I was favoring speed over accuracy. How many of us have ever struggled with that in middle school or beyond middle school? Speed over accuracy. That is the malaise of our day. Now, the point that I'm making isn't about following directions. A lot of people, when you talk about your faith, they assume you're good at following directions. They assume you're good at keeping the rules. They assume you're good at sort of having the moral fiber and the character that allows you to kind of step into these things like be a good person and give your money away and care for the poor and all these things. Following directions isn't the point that I'm trying to make. The point that I'm trying to make is that my sixth grade teacher, who I didn't like very much, taught me something that shifted a foundation. And so today we're going to be talking about foundations. What are the foundations of your faith, of the way you go to work, of the way you raise your kids, the way you go to school? What are those convictions that are so singular and so present for you that it's like, how could I not do my schoolwork that way? So to this day, I can still picture her handwriting, red letters, of course, following directions, when I get a request from a coworker, or when I'm asked to do a task by my boss. Uh, when I was in school, I was really, really dedicated to kind of systematically analyzing the paper prompt. Okay, you want me to talk about this for a little while, and then I got to do this section, then I got to do this, and then I got to do that. If you're a type A type person, you know what I'm talking about. It changed how I learn, and my foundation, rather than being a foundation of speed, became one of accuracy. 
We have all had moments where our foundation has kind of been reset, where we've gone, I, I thought I was doing it right this way, but I guess I need to learn to do it right a different way. The church is no different. The community that God calls into existence, the community that Apostle Paul is writing this letter to, is a, church, is a community that's founded on certain things. And one of the takeaways that uh, we will find in this sermon series, and actually very specifically today, is that Christ is the church's foundation. If you grew up in a church that had hymnals, you may have sang the hymn, the church is one foundation. The church is one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. That is what we're talking about today. And our text is going to show us that the church is a little bit like those ginormous buildings that they're building by QFC. Have you seen these buildings like right behind me? This is crazy making, right? Like they're these massive structures. They're coming in where there was, I guess, a, a dumpy old movie theater and a bakery and the, sort of these simple, quaint things. Now they're being, you know, sort of shoveled under by these massive buildings behind us. And we as a church and we as individuals are like those buildings. We're not finished yet. But what allows us to be finished in the way that God intends is our foundation. So we're going to be spending most of our time in Ephesians 2. You're welcome to turn there with me if you'd like. And as we do that, I'm going to give us two kind of headings that we'll consider this under. Yes, there are three headings in your bulletin. I shrunk it down to two. You're welcome. Here's our thesis. Christ is the church's cornerstone. And our lives are his unfinished temple. Christ is the church's cornerstone, and, his, and our lives are his unfinished temple. Turn with me to verse 19. Josh just read it for us, but we're going to read it again. And I want to encourage all of us, uh, in the week coming, if you don't have something that you're going to be looking at in the Bible, if you're just starting to kind of figure out reading the Bible is good, it's important, I'd recommend reading Ephesians 2 and 3 in the week ahead. Here's what it says in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God. What is Paul talking about there? In the early days of the church, all kinds of people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, this is the time of the Roman Empire. The church, Christianity, was sort of a marginalized group of people. And there were churches that were populated with people of different backgrounds, depending on where the church was located. A lot of churches had predominantly one group of people showing up to them regularly, and those were Jews. Those were people who were part of the nation of Israel, who, like the Apostle Paul, the author of this letter, kind of knew stuff about the Old Testament. They knew stuff about Messiah. They knew stuff about Yahweh, the God of the Bible, all that kind of thing. And so that was typically the strongest group of people that you might find in a particular church, was people familiar with a Jewish background. That's not how it stayed, (laughs) The church continued to spread, people continued to be reached, there were more and more people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and fewer and fewer people were coming from that Jewish background, more were coming from the background most of us come from, which is Gentiles, people who are not Jews, people who are not beholden to the same laws and kind of practices that those folks would have been. Now, every one of us has been in a room where there are two distinct groups of people, whether it's divisions, whether it's something like, okay, this group of people is here as the audience, this group of people is here as the presenters. Maybe you've been in a classroom. Maybe you've been in a place where there are two different ethnic groups of people that are sitting in the same space trying to get to know one another. Maybe you've uh, walked into certain things like working with people in poverty. You know about those divisions, and what does it always create? Even with the best intentions, even with all the good work that can be done to kind of help groups get along, there's always tension, Right? There's always tension whenever you get two different groups of people together in a room. And do you know why that is? Because people going to be people. Can you say that with me? People going to be people. It's okay. We can let ourselves off the hook the next time we're in a meeting and things get awkward. You can be the guy or gal sitting in your chair going, well, people going to be people. 
Stuff is just going to get weird when people get in a room and there's tension. It happens. This is, I think, the root of the Seattle freeze. We need to discover that. We need to study this and try to address it. So the Gentiles in the church come to faith in Jesus. The Jews in the church come to faith in Jesus Christ. There's tension. People are going to be people. And so what is Paul's advice to them? What is he saying in this moment in the letter that they should do about that tension, they should do about their life together? It's actually not something that Paul tells them to do. It's something that he swings wide the door for God to do in and through them. If you want to go back to chapter 2 with me, I'm going to read from verse 13. But now in Jesus Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now in Jesus Christ. If you were here last week, we talked about a similar phrase earlier in chapter 2, but God, but God. It is the intervention of God standing in the middle of something tense, something that could get raw, something that could get ugly, and saying, I know this is happening, but I have a way for us forward. But God is stepping in here in the text. But now, in Jesus Christ, you are being brought in to the family of God. Some of us, after the sermon last week, we wrote little post-it notes to ourselves that just said the word, but God. And the hope for that was, is that you would take that post-it note and put it up somewhere at your screen at work or in your car when you're driving your kids around so that you could remember, as discouraging as things may get, as many giants as you may face, but God knows the way through it. But God understands your crazy coworker and can speak to them and can use you to speak to them so that they aren't crazy anymore and you know how to work with them. These are the moments when God is calling us to lean into him, not to try to come up with our own resources. And he does this in the church by taking us from our far-off places and allowing us to be family. He moves us from being far off to being family. And he did that through the Jews and the Gentiles. He helped these two groups of people get along. This movement from far off to family, this is not just like it happened in the book of Ephesians or it happened in the New Testament church. This is one of the stories that comes up over and over again in the scriptures. Think about Moses. Moses was abandoned as an orphan. He was brought into the royal family. So he went from far off, floating in a basket down the river, into the royal court, raised up in a family, far off to family. He murdered a guy committed a serious crime, and went on the run. He was far off from that society. He was going to be prosecuted for that crime. And instead, he runs out into the desert in the wilderness, and he finds a family. And he's brought into the life of this nomadic tribe of shepherds. Again and again, Moses' life is the story of from far off to family. Have you had that experience? Have you extended that experience to someone else where you've said, look, you, you're out in the woods. You seem really lost. All I want to do is just care for you. Would you come to my house? Would you, would you step into my office? Let me talk to you. Let me buy you a cup of coffee. How are things going really? How do we help someone move from far off to family? When I first arrived in the Pacific Northwest in 2005, I moved to a church in Gig Harbor, my wife's hometown. I was going to work with middle schoolers and high schoolers there. And part of my job, part of the benefits of my job, is I got to live with a family from that church. They were going to be my host family, take care of my meals, all that kind of stuff. Well, that family, when I landed in Gig Harbor, was out of town. And so they directed me to some friends from their small group, a wonderful elderly couple named Dick and Judy. And Dick and Judy didn't know me from Adam. And I was a 23-year-old kid from Texas, driving up in my car, had no idea what was going on. And they said, come on into our house. And I can still remember pulling up to Dick and Judy's house in Gig Harbor. I I can picture it right where it is in town. And I didn't grow up with split levels. 
And so when I walked into a split-level house for the first time, I was really confused. Because I went, which way do I go? I don't understand. And Judy's up at the top of the stairs. Come on up here. And they had a beautiful meal laid out for me. They didn't know me. They didn't know who I was. They just knew I was coming to work at their church, and their kids were long grown, and they didn't have any investment in middle school kids, but they're investing in me. That was when I felt like I had been taken from far off to family. And you know what that did for my understanding of the gospel, my understanding of what Jesus Christ is doing, has done, and will continue to do for me? It made it come alive. It made it real at a very critical time in my life. So my, my question for us at the end of this first topic is, who can you bring in? Who can you bring in who is far off? Who can you bring in who is marginalized? Who can you welcome at table at your home? Who can you find at work or at school who just feels like everybody else has written them off and you can bring them in and you can give them that meal that you may not know it, but they'll know it, will change their life? It's as simple as that. And I think we are all in positions where we can do this for others because that is what our God has done for us. So that's from far off to family. Now let's talk about the second part where we talk about Christ as our cornerstone. In Jesus Christ, we move from far off to family. God does this all the time. He hasn't just done it one time. He's done it in my life. He's done it in your life. Now let's talk about the second heading. And I want to read from the message translation. So I'll ask Eric to put this slide up on the screen. This is how the message paraphrase puts these two key verses in our text today. He, Jesus, is using us all irrespective of how we got there. In what he's building. He used the apostles and prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you. You, Bethany. He's using you. Fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all these parts together. The word cornerstone here is really interesting. In the days of Paul writing this letter in the ancient Near East, any building, any home had to have a cornerstone And that cornerstone had to be cut at the perfect 90-degree angle. In other words, that was the one stone in your building, in your temple, in your property that you as the builder could count on being perfectly aligned. Because why would you need that? Well, in order to build anything else straight or in order to build anything else that's going to last for a long time, you have to build off of that primary perfect angle. A crooked foundation leads to a crooked building. A crooked foundation leads to a crooked building. Following directions, my sixth grade teacher saw me building a lot of crooked buildings, and she helped me reset that foundation. And here's what I think that means in our day. In the church, Christ is our cornerstone. Yep, we've all been in church. We've heard sermons on that. That's great. We know that that's what he's forming in us. But do we regularly check in with ourselves about that? Do we ask ourselves, what are the influences that are shaping me? I get this new boss at work, and he's you know, saying certain things to me. Or one of my coworkers, she came from this school of marketing, and now I'm having to listen to this other thing. How do we adapt and assimilate the things that we hear all the time? And how do we measure them against the foundation of Jesus Christ? How do we make sure that we are staying in line with what he is doing? Well, you can look at the person to your left and look at the person to your right and say, you're kind of responsible for this. The people around you, the community that we have here is going to be a part of that. The community is going to help you see who you are becoming. Who you are becoming is more important than your job. It is more important than your kids. 
It is more important than all the things that try to pull us away from all the other stuff that God is doing in our lives. And I can just tell you, as a parent with three young kids, it is darn near impossible to think, who am I becoming? Because I got so many fires to put out, I got so much stuff to do, and this needs to happen, and when are we going to do that? And I still haven't fixed the sink, and this is all going on. I understand it's a lot, and I'm not asking all of us to kind of just re-engineer our lives in a moment and figure out ways to do this, but I'm saying it's something to aim at. And it's something we can move the ball toward incrementally. Why does this matter? Some of you may know Peter Drucker. He was the, uh, at least a generation ago, sort of the father of the modern management movement, right? So if you did an MBA recently or if you've done anything with management, you've probably read Peter Drucker's books. He's mentioned quite a bit in a different book on leadership that I'm reading right now. But Drucker had some very convicting things to say about character, Because that's what I think we're getting at here when we talk about how do we level ourselves, how do we as followers of Jesus Christ make sure we're lined up with that cornerstone of Jesus? It is by paying attention to our character. Here's what Drucker says about character in the marketplace, in the real world, in business world. Character is the foundation of effective leadership. Organizations rely on the character of the people who run them. That's a little scary. Conversely, organizations that lack integrity always fall apart. Think about it. Enron, WorldCom, Bernie Madoff, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, the list goes on and on and on, and they have fallen apart in part because of character deficiencies in those who are leading them. This was just a very convicting quote for me as a leader. Drucker writes, Your team may forgive you as a leader if you're incompetent, if you're ignorant, if you're insecure, or if you have bad manners, but they will not forgive you if you have a lack of integrity. Your team will forgive you for a lot of things. Your classmates will forgive you for a lot of things. Your neighbors will forgive you for a lot of things. But if integrity goes out the window, if you start cooking the books, Enron style, if you start having inappropriate relationships, that this is when it falls apart. This is when the foundation is revealed to be one that is not at the 90-degree angle, that is not in the way of Jesus Christ, and the building can't be built. It can't hold together. Here's the point. Your character is your cornerstone. Your character is your cornerstone. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, good news, your character is being shaped by the Lord of heaven and earth, and that's a good thing. And that's better than anything any of us can come up with. And Christ, since he is the cornerstone of the church and we are a part of that, your character is being formed around his character. As we gather together, as we worship, as we're in small groups, as we're praying for one another, that's when that character is rubbing off on each other. It's rubbing off on our kids. And they are being shaped more and more in the life of Christ. That's why being here is so important. That's why showing up and being present in worship is so incredibly important. And doing that reflecting work on who is shaping your life, who is making these statements into your life that you're assimilating, that you're sort of forming to be part of your character, knowingly or unknowingly, We need to take time and actually think about that. Could you name someone who's really influenced your character? Could you name someone right now, just kind of in the quiet of your mind, who has shaped you in a significant way? How about someone who shaped you in a way that wasn't so good? Maybe someone that taught you not to trust others. Maybe someone that told you if you just worked hard enough, no matter what, then you'd get the thing, and gosh darn it, now you're a workaholic. 
there are always going to be these influences. And when we run it through the lens of what we know of Jesus Christ and how he's revealed himself to us, our character can be properly shaped. Paul is telling the church at a critical moment in the life of the church, don't build on anything except Jesus. Earlier in the text, when it talked about the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, how the cornerstone is beneath that, everything that the apostles and prophets taught and proclaimed and tried to bring to life in the local church was meant to be done in subservience to the cornerstone. That's what Paul is trying to tell these folks. Don't go build your church on Paul. Don't go build your church on whoever the trendy teaching is right now or whatever the theology is right now. Build it on Jesus Christ, church, because you are still under construction. You and I are still under construction. So, what's your foundation? What are you building off of? And depending on what your foundation is, it may lead to crumbling. Jesus is our cornerstone, and that is our hope. He is the one that leads us from the place where we're just kind of starting off, just being built as disciples, being ste- stepping into new things as leaders, starting new ventures in ministry, where Christ being the cornerstone is absolutely the key. Listen to these final verses from the message again. I'll ask Eric to put the slide back up. And we'll have a few things that we'll actually consider together. We'll take some time and think about together. Now he, Jesus, is using you, fitting you in, brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. We see it taking shape day after day. This is you, church. Believe it. A holy temple built by God, all of us built into it. A temple in which God is quite at home. I like that phrase, quite at home. Makes me think of going home and putting on my slippers and putting my feet up. Where God is quite at home in your heart and in my heart. We need one another to achieve this. We need to be here. My challenge for us as a church is that when you are in town this summer, be here. When town, be here. All throughout the summer, let's see one another. Let's check in with each other. Let's talk about how our lives are going, how our babies are growing, how things are moving forward in our businesses. Let's do it. Don't miss out on this time. Don't miss out on reading scripture. We have those sheets again at the back that have all these wonderful identity statements about who we are in Jesus Christ and how he's made us and the things that he will do and the things that he will save us from. Read through that. Pray through that throughout the summer. And look for opportunities to hold your character up against the character of people that you really admire who love Jesus Christ. That's been the number one place of formation, for me at least, is the people who I can look up to, who I know are following after Jesus, and who just have that much more wisdom that I can learn from. Some of you know that uh, a big influence on my life is a man named Dallas Willard. I never met Dallas. He passed away five years ago, but he was a professor of philosophy at USC for a long time. He was a well-respected Christian and intellectual. And one thing I've heard about Dallas over and over and over again, and I think some of us have known people like this, is that when you met him, you felt like you were in the presence of someone just different. Someone who just existed in such a deep and trusting relationship with Jesus Christ that you just, you just felt better. You felt like you were around someone who really got it, who really loved others, who really cared for people. Someone uh, was introducing Dallas Willard at a talk he gave, and they said, uh, Dallas's heart is better than his mind. Isn't that great? Like, wh- I would love to have people say that about me. But how does someone get there? Someone gets there with Christ as their cornerstone. And Dallas grew up in the rural parts of Missouri, Missouri, as it's called, 
when he was a boy, he would carry his lunch to school in a little metal pail, right, with his, his fellow classmates. He lost his mother at a young age. He shuffled around from family to family. He struggled to find a place to land. An uncle would take him in for a little while, and then they'd have to move him on to someone else's house. At one point in his life, he was cutting firewood just outside of one of his neighbor's house, and he remembers thinking to himself, well, if I do this right, maybe this family will take me in. That's a pretty tough foundation for character. How could something wonderful emerge from that? How could something wonderful emerge from the brokenness and the pain that has been in each of our lives? I want to share a very quick story from a wonderful book I've been reading about Dallas Willard, a new biography of him. Dallas had an older brother named Dwayne, and when they were in college, they entered a talent show. Dwayne had a very polished singing voice, could easily have won, sang a beautiful song. But right before Dallas's turn, a boy had gone up to play his guitar and had not done very well. His performance was homespun and folksy. His guitar style was not that great. But then Dallas got up after him, after Dwayne had sung and after the guitar guy, Dallas got up and said, I would give my right arm if I could play the guitar like that. Well, that gracious comment won the audience over, and Dallas then sang, I am a poor wayfaring stranger, and with that, he won the contest. Do we see character like that very often? Where someone says, with all generosity and all graciousness of spirit, that person's really good. Pay attention to them. That person needs to win. No. Our day is one of, look at me, give me what's mine. I need to win. I want to be the type of person whose character is reflected in moments like that, seemingly small moments, right, like a talent show in college, but where someone else's life was potentially changed, where that boy who couldn't play the guitar well at least had one person who was cheering for him. And that person went on to become a great leader in the church, a great thinker, someone that I look up to a lot. I want that kind of character in my life and in my kid's life and in your kid's life and in our life together as a church. And I think it starts by identifying people like Dallas Willard that we say, if I can have a little bit of that person's faith in Jesus Christ, a little bit of their devotion to him, oh, that would be good. So I want us to prepare to come to the table together now because we're going to celebrate communion. It's appropriate that we do so this Sunday because communion is always a good opportunity to reflect on our hearts and reflect on where we are in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so rather than just talk about the influences that have shaped you, rather than just talk about character, we're going to take some time and think about it. So I want to invite Megan to come back up here. I want to invite the communion servers to come forward. And there'll be three questions up on the screen as they come forward. And I want to invite all of us at our seats to just think on these, maybe turn these into a moment of confession. It's always good to confess before we come to the table, to ask Jesus to bring healing and mercy into our lives. But let's consider these three questions. You can write stuff down if you want to, or you can just think, you can pray. But starting at the top, who has shaped your character? Who's been one of the key influences in your journey to today? And to put it in a timely framing, who or what is currently shaping your character? Who's that voice at work or that voice at school that is really bringing things up for you, good or bad? And then finally, what's one step you could take this week, like the scripture said, to be a temple in which God is quite at home?
Is there something you need to drop, something you need to change, same ambition you got to let die so that God is that much more at home in your heart and in mine? Jesus, we thank you for this time to have heard from your scriptures. We thank you for the people who've shaped us. For some of us, there are voices that we're thinking about that have shaped our character that we wish we didn't hear because it was hard or painful. For some of us, there are voices of love and encouragement and affirmation, and we're so grateful for those precious words. We receive no greater word than the word we receive from you when you turn to us in love and you say, come and follow me. And so in obedience to that calling, we come to your table. We come to break bread, to drink juice, to be with you. And so we thank you that this is your table where you are the host, where we are your family. Thank you for bringing us in from far away to be here. Would you bless these elements? Bless our time at the table. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.